I loved seeing the proliferation of cocktails. You'd be able to go to every pub and every restaurant and they would have a version of it. You'd watch people run around and try and make a mojito in a pub setting. And I was just like, this isn't hospitable. It doesn't benefit the staff. It doesn't benefit the guest. It doesn't benefit the business. How could you actually set things up to enable the bits that matter? Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. Today, I am speaking with Ryan Chetiwadana. Ryan is a bartender and bar operator who is known for his highly considered and responsible approach to ingredients and hospitality, an ethos that can be seen through some of the most celebrated venues of the past 10 years, of which he is responsible for. Places like White Lion, Cub, Dandelion, Lioness, Silver Lion, and Super Lion. I think there's a theme there. On this episode, we discuss Ryan's younger years and his introduction into food and drink and how he landed in the bar industry. We talk about Ryan's motivations and influences, the importance, or not, of specialization, recognition and awards, reputation, building a brand, trends, and much more. It was great to get Ryan back on the podcast. Do look back at our Flavors episode from February 2021 to hear more from Ryan. But without further ado, I give you Ryan Chetiwadana. Okay, I am here with Ryan Chetiwadana. Hey, Ryan. Hey, pal. How are you? Good, thank you. Um, you are part of the coveted club of repeat offenders on this podcast. <laughs> this is your second time. I'm very thankful to be back. Yeah. It's always nice to chat. It's good to have you back. And this time in the studio as well, which is yes. uh, always better. Um, so, uh, as is customary these days on the podcast, we're going to start with some quickfire questions to break the ice, because obviously we don't know each other at all. <laughs> Are you ready for your quickfires? I am indeed. So quick as you can, first thing that comes to your head, try and keep it to one word, if unless the question oh, requires a little bit more than one word. Okay, here we go. Name a spirit category that deserves more attention. Sherry. What's your least favourite cocktail and why oh, is it... That's not even a spirit. I'm so sorry. <laughs> We're off to a great start here. Ryan doesn't know the difference between a spirit and a wine. Bombshell. Don't worry. It's fine. Okay. It's got spirit in it, right? It does. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, 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 a little bit. Okay, next one. What's your least favourite cocktail and why is it a Bloody Mary? <laughs> a Bloody Mary is probably contender, um, as is a sidecar. Mm, I knew you'd come up with that one as well. Um, but actually, to make or just to drink? or is... No, to drink, yeah. Um, Bloody Mary. It's a travesty. <laughs> uh, what do you garnish a martini with, typically? Twist and an olive. Oh, a little bit of both. Would you rather cuddle a baby panda or a baby penguin? Oh, baby panda. Hmm. Scale of one to ten, how good are you at flair bartending? Four. Ooh, that's higher than I thought you were going to go with. We might need a demo. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like chartreuse? Yellow, yes. What sound do you make when a drink is really tasty? Oofed. <laughs> That's what you got to look out for, folks, when Ryan comes in your bar. Best city for drinking in the world? London. Most underrated bar you can think of? La Venencia in <laughs> Madrid. Yeah, I thought you might go with that one as well. <laughs> it was kind of a loaded question. It's one. It's, I mean, it's both of us agree that it is maybe the best spot. So we actually we started and ended this quickfire question with sherry because uh, it is a sherry bar. It's a sherry bar. Yeah. Um, do you want to, talk, to describe it because it is fantastic? Place. I mean, it's uh, it's an ancient little bar. It's lined with kind of old bottles. You can't really take photos. But what's amazing about it is there's three barrels of sherry. They have a 
you know, a, an Oloroso, a Palacotado, and depending what else they might have in at that point. Uh, they have little snacks. They write on the little bar top with whatever you're having. There's a cat and a dog that live in there. <laughs> it's charming. There's a great energy. The hosting's amazing. It couldn't be more perfect of a bar. Yeah, it is amazing. And the yeah. snacks, they they pair it with the sherry you're having, yeah. right? So if you're having one, if you only stick with one sherry, you're only going to get one type of snack. Yeah. So you've got to diversify <laughs> a little bit if you want to try the full range. Or do what McLaren and I did, which is order everything. Yeah. And then you can just have an array in front of you and it still only costs you 20 euros. Yeah. Yeah, it is an amazing place. Cool. Well, look, it's great to have you back on. Um, I would imagine pretty much everyone listening to this knows who you are. Um, maybe they've heard you on this podcast and that was their first encounter, but more likely they are aware of your bars and your, uh, you know, your your impact on the on the bar industry over the last 10, 15 years. But for those who are not aware, maybe you give us a a brief bio of what you've been up to. Sure. I mean, I've been working in hospitality for over two decades um, and tried to cover as much as I could. I worked with lovely people such as yourself. Um, And then 10 years ago, started out the Lion Company, which was trying to look at ways in which we could, I suppose, explore the fringes of of what food and drink could could work with. Um, And we've opened and closed bars we've done various books and projects over those years um and then currently we have lioness and seed library in london superline in amsterdam silverline in dc um and they all try and explore how we can have fun in the world of drinks and push the definitions around it the audiences we get to interact with and the types of industries we get to collaborate with as well Mm. Well, we'll get into those venues um, and and the rest of your career shortly, but maybe let's go right back to the start now. How did your journey in food and drink begin? It probably started quite young. And I think because we grew up in a household which, you know, food was very important to us um, and we were taught to, to think about a diversity of tastes. I think growing up in Birmingham, where we were exposed to a lot of different cultures, different flavors, aromas, all those things, it just naturally got us kind of curious about some of those, um, you know, ways in which you could connect with people through flavor. Not that we thought about it in such an academic way as kids, but it certainly was something that we were encouraged to feel curious about. Mm. And, you know, my oldest friend growing up was, was Chinese. So we got to kind of explore a lot of different Chinese cuisine. Um, I got to see how different cultures like gathered in those ways. We'd go to to kind of Chinese celebrations. We'd go to Sri Lankan ones. There was a big kind of Indian community in in Birmingham. Um, and then, of course, growing up in a very, you know, Christian school with friends who kind of come from lots of different parts of the, the UK, you kind of saw lots of different perspectives. And I think that was something that... Um, you know, it resonated with us. I think because mum and dad had used food and drink as such a, a major social guide, um, we all kind of just picked up on that. And we we learned to cook from a young age. We were kind of traveling, even if it was just within the UK, we would try new things. And so I think this kind of encouragement to to think about a diversity of experiences mm. um, was, was introduced at a very young age. And the palette of flavors as well, I guess, as well, because it's a bit richer in... Well, Asian food, if you want to call it like a broad brush stroke, but Indian food, Chinese food, you yeah. know, it, the, the the range of spicing and acidifiers and everything that's used is, you know, a little bit different to what you might call traditional British food, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we certainly had the mix. We 
couldn't do spice then, and I still can't do spice now. <laughs> but you don't do heat, do you? No, well at all. None, no. none of the chili. So as kids, I remember there were certain times where we were just like crying in the corner as there's this big kind of Indian feast being served out by friends. Um, but, you know, absolutely. I remember, you know, being challenged to try new things and textures and, you know, stuff that you kind of identify as being strange as a child. Um, but then like being taught that it's not strange. Mm. It's just something new to try. Mm. And I think that itself was probably kind of a big steer in us thinking, you know, about like exploring new stuff and, and, and trying to like expose ourselves to different tastes. Mm. Was your exposure to food, um, like interesting food or food that interested you, um, consistent throughout your childhood and teenage years? Or because I think, I, speaking for myself, I had a pretty good grounding in food and flavor. My mum was a great cook. Um, but nevertheless, you know, my teenage years, I probably had a lot less interest in eating nice food and yeah. more interest in other things. Yes. Did, did you experience that or was it always there? No, it certainly dipped. Um, I think, as you say, you kind of get enticed by kind of other, like, well, exciting, shiny things mm. when you're kind of hitting teenage years. And, you know, I think there was probably still a degree that, you know, I would like to indulge in that stuff. And I think some of it had kind of crossed over into feeling quite homely. Like I would yeah. meet old friends and we would go for, for dim sum. And, you know, in amongst otherwise eating quite bland and beige food during kind of teenage years, that would still kind of be there as, as not so much a treat or something exotic, but a different point of comfort. Mm. And I think that still helped. But I think there wasn't that journey of discovery through those years as much as there had been when I was younger. And then I think when you start to grow into your own character and you feel a little bit more mm. confident and then you regain that willingness to, to kind of dive into the deep end. And I think as a result of that, I did that with Gusto. I think I then ended up going, okay, well, what else is there out to explore? Once I kind of got past that, teenage grumpiness and kind of went you know okay cool there's a whole world of flavor out there and i think even being exposed to kind of new travels and then being able to you know be very fortunate to working in an industry that does expose you to lots of different things and that was very much in the the latter part of my teenage years mm -hmm. i was into bars and restaurants and you know training as a chef being exposed to to kind of I suppose more classical culinary things, but still being introduced to new flavors, techniques, ingredients. Um, and then I'd say more so in the bar world where you're all of a sudden kind of learning about different cultures and a curiosity then trips you from learning about tequila into learning about some of the cuisine and spices and things that surround it. Um, so I think I, yeah, after that blip of teenage years, went kind of gung-ho trying to explore a load more after that. Mm. So did that sort of rediscovery of flavour happen when you were already working in hospitality? Like you got you were behind a bar at that point or was it the way around? So, you know, you're kind of like, because I know you start, you, were, you were at university for a while, right? You did mm -hmm. philosophy and biology? Biology and then philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So were you working as a bartender through that, the university times? Yeah, through, since, well, after leaving school, I, I went into kind of culinary college. So trained as a chef and thought that would be an amazing... I actually originally just did it because I was intrigued by kind of putting some practical lessons behind the stuff that I was doing already as kind of a home cook. Um, but then when I, you know, I quickly made the move into the bar world and it was the constant. So first down in London at art college 
again, exposed to a new city, a new way of um, living, working. Um, and the bar was the kind of constant alongside that. And originally I was in a club, so working in a nightclub and... You know, I bet you're a great club bartender. I loved being... I mean, I'm not the quickest bartender, as you know, um, but it was so much fun working in a club. And I, I still think that there's a huge amount that a lot of bartenders would, you know, you know, in working in even the, the kind of highest, kind of most uh, fanciful end of the sphere, would learn heaps would from working in a... From, yeah. Absolutely. I did a stint in a club in Oxford when I was... the. I had a, had a brief stint in Oxford at university and an even briefer stint working in a club <laughs> in Oxford. I was fired um, for the simple fact that I just didn't stop turning up to work, basically. You know, I kind of <laughs> picked and choose, a bit like I did with my lectures, when I was going to go to work yeah. and uh, eventually got fired. But um, you're right, there is something about the... I guess the sort of mechanics of a club, it has mm-hmm. to work like a very well-oiled machine yeah. uh, in order for it to fulfil its objective, which is serving lots and lots of drinks to lots yeah. and lots of people. And you've got to you've got to learn to have a different empathy almost. Mm. And you know, there's a way that a club functions to to help people have a good time. You've got such a high volume of people, and the interactions have to be different. And you've got to be able to to feel things in a much kind of quicker, mm. more succinct manner. Mm. And I think it's a, it's a great skill to be able to do. I chat a lot with, you know, Ian, who was um, old lion partner, who was, you know, he grew up in clubs as well. And both of us were very good at doing very quick mental arithmetic and being able to, to kind of field eight to 10 orders at a time. Um, as a result of it, I've lost all of those skills, <laughs> but it was still, you know, it was useful grounding and things that I, you know, I, I do think about a lot and, you know, I challenge a lot of the teams to think about when they're, you know, even working in one of the, you know, take something like Silver Lion, it's a much more kind of grand experience. But they still need to think about that agility and their ability to, like, pivot their language, depending on what somebody might need. And club bartending's great for teaching that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So... You started off in uh, you, you, you were bartending when you were in uh, art college in London, mm-hmm. and then developed them there. So you're you're one of the kind of early Bramble alumni, weren't you? Up in Edinburgh, yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because Bramble is another one of these bars where it, I mean it does get a fair amount of recognition, but probably not enough considering the number of bartenders that have been through the place. And I also think its its impact on a global drinking scene, I yeah. think, is is enormous and completely is in proportionate to its size yeah. and you know everything around it it's you know it's had an incredible impact and that's not just me being biased to it but i joined just just after their first birthday mm. um and it was you know it was a it's a funny story actually i i applied on their first day of trade without really knowing what was going on i'd worked you know i was working at oloroso i'd been back home to birmingham for after the kind of summer um, kind of uni break and spoke with my old bar manager who'd worked with Jace when he was at Oloroso and he was like oh you know two two ex Oloroso team are, are just opening a bar maybe go, go chat to them if you want to look at a different style of bar I wander in as they're just opening doors and meet Jace I'm like oh you know Dave Price said you might be looking for a, a bartender He's like, actually, we're just about to open. There's three of us, and we're fully stocked. But thanks for coming in. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, 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 couldn't, I didn't really recall it until later. Um, you know, as it became my kind of favorite bar to hang out in. Um, and you know, I would often go in there drinking, and you know, it, there was always an amazing vibe. It was the, 
you know, the hub for a lot of education and competitions and, and all sorts. It was very much the, I suppose, the progression in the scene. You know, there'd been great restaurant kind of cocktail bars. There'd been kind of nightclub cocktail bars and style bars. But there wasn't anything that had really set out in the same way that, that Bramble had done. Mm. Um, and that was hugely exciting to me. And I think it it was one of those bars that really cemented the things that I knew I cared about in hospitality. Like, I obviously love getting geeky on the drinks and learning about different spirits, all those things. But, you know, Bramble was a bar that was about looking after people. You know, they had great music. It was a very cozy space. It felt like you were walking into somebody's vision and their their way of operating and you got to to kind of participate in that. And that was a, an amazing thing for me. Um, so I kind of, you know, essentially badgered them for a while um, about seeing whether I could kind of join the team. And uh, yeah, I remember being there drinking with my my old flatmate and Jace kind of turning to me. I was I was managing a bar in, in kind of Southside at the time. And he kind of said, well, do you know anybody who's looking for a job? I was like, oh, you know, do you need somebody part-time or full-time? He's like, well, ideally full-time, but we take them for what they get. And he goes through these list of things. And I'm like, right, I'll keep my ear out to it. My flatmate, just as we're walking out, is like, you know you're an idiot, right? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? He's like, he was offering you a job and you just totally just like reeled off a list and went cool. And I was like, I don't know if he did. So I dropped Jason a message the next day saying... Would you um, you be up for a chat about what you're talking about? This is like a girl coming up to you yeah. and saying, "Do you know any single guys?" <laughs> Completely oblivious. <laughs> Not really one for getting a hint. And um, yeah, I went and spoke with with him and Mike the next day, and he's like, "I did think it was funny, and I thought you were fobbing me off." Um, and you know, joined the team, and it was an amazing kind of learning experience for me. And dear friend of ours, you know, talks about, Craig Harper talks about the fact that, you know, if it wasn't for Jason Scott, you know, his line is, we'd all be drinking drinks that taste like jam. (laughs) And I think it's kind of, obviously there was other things that kind of influenced that, but, you know, Jason's palate and his kind of fierce determination that cocktails shouldn't just be kind of fruity things. And, you know, Mike's ability to, to kind of, you know, bring in a sense of, functioning cool to a to a space it was a it was an amazing partnership and i think as a result and their passion and their they had such a clear vision about what they wanted that bar to be you know the the amount of influence it had you know the bartenders that came through there and you know it's an amazing list to look at kind of who's gone on and done incredible things around the world um but also some of the more subtle things you know yes there was kind of drinks influences but I think the approach to service, the approach to, you know, how do you do a bar on a, a tiny budget and make it feel warm and amazing and, you know, those kind of spaces that people often had overlooked to turn it into a gem. I think it was a a, a kind of a really early example of, of a, a new wave of cocktail bars. And I think you talk to a lot of people and it might not be over and it might not be the things that gets written down in, you know, the lexicon of like cocktail journey, but, you know, people talk about the importance of that bar and it's mm. i'm really glad it it has that personal connection for people I, and i still encourage people to make the kind of pilgrimage and go and see it firsthand because it's still open which is amazing yeah yeah they're, are they over 15 years now i think it's 17 17 yeah it's amazing yeah i mean it's an interesting one isn't it because it's always you know anyone anytime anyone does something new it's always newsworthy and talked about a lot as if it's the best thing that's ever happened but it's all standing on the shoulders of giants right yeah 
And I think Bramble's definitely one of those giants from the past that's still present, of course. <laughs> we don't want to talk about it like it's closed. Um, that, you know, has, has just gone on to influence so much. And I think also, you know, every city kind of has its moment with cocktail bars. Um, and it does often tend to be one bar that kind of is the tipping point. And, yeah. you know, often that then sort of seeds lots of other yep. bar entrepreneurs, bartenders that maybe travel the world or whatever. Um, and Bramble was, I think, certainly that for Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, you know, although there were bars there before that were doing cool stuff, Bramble's, from, in my eyes, seemed to be the one that really changed the game. And I think they brought a, an international attention and that was a, a massive benefit to the whole city. Mm. And I think it was, it was also part of what encouraged... You know, the strength to me of Edinburgh scene was how much people worked together. There was so much shared education. It wasn't this idea of competition between bars. It was about kind of a unity. And I think Bramble really helped cement that because it got international attention. It brought people through. But they were a bartender's bar. You know, mm. they would send people to other spaces and it would create this sense of community. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right. It's often a bar that kind of seeds it for the rest of the the community but it's those rare examples where a bar lifts it for everybody mm -hmm. and it, it it causes this amazing you know Edinburgh became like a very important scene you know within Europe the world everything you know and I think considering the size of the city and and it's you know geographical difficulty for a lot of people traveling through it's you know the food and drink scene was one of the major reasons. Yes, of course, it's a beautiful historical city as well, but you had people who would make that trip, and I think that was really important. Mm. So you left Bramble, you moved to London, worked in a couple of other places. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we worked together at Whistling Shop for yeah. a year or two, um, and Pearl a little bit too, um, which was great. Um, and then you started your own thing. Yeah. Now, that started with White Lion, which um, was another one of these bars that was incredibly influential and somewhat of a tipping point, not necessarily to London, but for sort of global cocktail culture, I would say, um, more, more than sort of geographically specific to this town. Um, I'm interested in kind of your experiences in the bars that came before and how consciously you use that experience to create your own bars and brands and experiences. Do you, is it is it something that's you as a conscious experience, or do you go with gut, but in hindsight recognise that probably actually you are kind of taking little bits and pieces and also ignoring bits and pieces you don't like? Yeah, I I think that's a it's a good question to understand where the the line lies, but I think it's absolutely the case that I was, you know, working through different places, and you know when you're working within a company, <laughs> you're trying to do your best for for that vision. Yeah. And you're trying to make it fit within the larger structure, the theme, all of that stuff. And I and I loved doing that. I think it's, you know, that really played a lot to my, I suppose, art school days of going, here's the brief. How do you answer that in a in whatever way you want to answer it? But how do you kind of fit it to that mold? And, you know, I, I loved working with you, for you, for like Mike and Jace and various people of of kind of going, this is a this is the nature of the bar. What can we create within it? But then I think there was a, a desire to kind of take elements of that and go, well, what else could we create? And I think partly it was looking at the the landscape of bars and being a bit frustrated of going, 
I think there should be, you know, the work that's going on in the hospitality world is incredible. And, you know, we should be talking about the amazing creative work that's happening, the diversity of skill sets, the amazing innovations that are going on. And, you know, we should also be demonstrating that we're, you know, as able to create new versions of things as, as any other industry. So it was kind of going, well, how can I take some of these elements? How can I take the parts that I really love? Um, and absolutely, it was kind of going, I also want to work against some of the things that I have been part of. You know, I was very fortunate to work with with great people, but I was also, you know, like most, I ended up working with systems or people that were less than savory and kind of going, well, I want to demonstrate that it can be different. Mm. So by being able to kind of pick and, um, I, I suppose, edit from a lot of that work to try and kind of demonstrate a different breadth. And, you know, White Lion was, you know, it, it was a lot of ways it was a love letter to the industry of going, mm. look, we can do other things. And it's amazing the work that's going on and, you know, the the history of our industry, the way in which we've been able to to take on different forms of that is, is amazing. It is something to celebrate and not in any way am I trying to diminish that, but there is a load of other white space and kind of White Lion was a very pointy demonstration of that. Mm. You know, it was an extreme bar, mm. but it was it was done in a way to kind of encourage, you know, looking at things in a different manner. It was a proof of concept in a way, wasn't it? It was like, here are some innovative turns our industry could take all one under one roof. Yeah. Um, you know, let's, let's test them out and see whether they work from a service standpoint from, and, and also from a business standpoint, yeah. I guess as well. hundred percent. And I think it was, you know, we were very fortunate to, well, I was going to say we we're very fortunate to get the recognition we did, but I think it also went on a journey. Mm. When we first started, I think people kind of didn't see it in that positive way. They they very much saw it as an affront. Mm. And I think that was... The status quo was being kind of upset a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And I think people saw it that we were trying to do it to tell them what they were doing was wrong. Yeah. And that certainly wasn't the case. Yeah. But it did then kind of open up a, a dialogue which was kind of great. And you saw this, not just, as you say, actually probably the the place it had the least impact was London. Mm. Because, I mean, London's also the only place in the world you could do a bar like that. Whereas it demonstrated a whole different way of thinking for, for kind of a global audience who, you know, we're lucky in the UK, you can, you know, mix things, you can source things in a different way, you can can be fairly flexible in, in how you do production. Whereas, you know, you go to Europe, you go to the US, go to other parts of the world, you just legally can't do that. <laughs> and so it was um, it, it was an extreme example and it worked. And I think it, it helped that people kind of came through and went, you know what, this might seem uh, heretic to you, but the drinks are delicious. And I think that was a really nice thing to, to kind of get reinforced. And I remember... I don't think anybody was really willing to stick their neck out kind of to say it was good or bad for a long time. And then we had our first kind of review break and it was it was glowing. And, you know, all of a sudden people were like, OK, we're going to explore this a little bit more. We're going to ask more questions rather than just be like, oh, it's got no ice. They're jokers kind of thing. Um, and it became a really amazing opportunity to have discussions. And, you know, at first, I think people wanted to, to hear us talk because... They wanted to know about the fact that we had no ice or no citrus. And they were like, how do you replace a lemon without using a lemon? And then it became much more about, 
the creative process, the business model, sustainability, like the professionalism of the industry. And it was wonderful to see those kind of more important conversations kind of come out of it. And even now I have people reference and say, oh, that was the encouragement I needed to do X or open this bar. And, mm. you know, it, it, it's lovely to see those things and like the legacy of it, you know, we're going to celebrate 10 years of it later this year. Like to see that still resonating is is really nice mm. to see. Yeah, maybe just out, if you could outline some of the stuff you did there mm -hmm. um, and then tell me like which what, 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 how you've used what you learned there in the, the present venues. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose the, the principle from a drinks point of view was to go, well, how can we control things? How can we demonstrate that there's a breadth of other ways of producing things and just using citrus to acidulate? sugar to sweeten and ice and shaking to, to kind of produce it. Um, so we stripped away all those things. We started with the water and built everything else up that we could control, like the spirits, the distillates, any cordials, um, and then tried to control things in a manner where they wouldn't vary. So we removed perishability. We removed um, nature's variants, essentially. Mm. Um, it's quite funny now. I suppose this is a logical development of it, but... Alex described um, White Line as being very digital um, because it was. It was simply just these are the controls. It's on or off, basically, um, compared to Seed Library, which is super analog and very fuzzy. Um, but, you know, we we looked at those pillars. We removed ice. We moved citrus. Um, we chilled everything in fridges or freezers, had everything in a very specific format. We had a house menu of drinks. It was about 32 drinks. You couldn't really order anything else. We had beers and wine, sure, but it was all things that we had made ourselves. Um, latterly, we made the beer and our wine ourselves as well. Um, I always remember the beer with the hop spray as well. Otherwise. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah, yeah. How we... hopped do you want it? Just keep on spraying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, everyone wanted it quite hoppy. <laughs> yeah, I did actually, yeah. Um, but I mean, even that was kind of going, how could we, you know, we knew that we had a limited menu, but we wanted it to feel hospitable. Yeah. You know, a major thing for us was... You know, a lot of guests get, you know, choice paralysis coming into a venue. They see a back bar. They don't know about it. If you don't have that sense of trust to engage with a bartender and go, well, I don't know what my favorite gin is. Can you help me? Um, it can be quite daunting. So we took away any of the, the kind of usual rigmarole and created a, a dynamic that we would talk to people. And so if we were going to have one beer, we would go, cool, well, we can serve it as a lager, but we can also you know, take this concentrate of hops and we've profiled it out to work in a certain way so you can have it more IPA style. Mm. Um, it was hugely fun. Like, mm. it was a really nice way of, honestly, a really nice way of bartending. Like, it was very quick. It gave the um, kind of focus to be on you as a bartender to look after people. And you could really do whatever you wanted to try and get to that point. Mm. Um, and, you know, we had some incredibly creative staff through that space some very seasoned people people that you know i think bucked what people expected they kind of went well if you're pre-producing everything and you're bottling you've got a bottle cocktail bar why don't you just get robots in and we had the opposite we had hugely creative very um experienced staff who could take people through things and push the creativity and go well even within these confines of like no ice no citrus which i think a lot of people thought would just mean that it was like old-fashioned and martinis we were able to to create a, you know, such a huge swathe of like 
interesting approaches to production, flavors, mm. being able to to kind of extract and control things. To it's make fun, sure it's that funny that of... people say about like getting robots in because you've already got the the production side of it kind of mm. done. I mean, I would think the other way around in a way. Like the the ro- most robotic part of being a bartender is the production. Hundred percent, right? It's yeah. it's the rest of it that's the creative, interesting, you know, um, conversational, whatever it might be. Analyzing a room, assessing personality, da da da, all that kind of raconteurship, you know. Spoken like a true bartender. <laughs> like it's, it's it's absolutely that. Those are the bits that count, and those are the bits that you. It's interesting if you you know I you speak to people who've stepped away from service and yes of course there's something kind of nicely tactile about putting together a drink but it's all those other bits that you miss it's Mm -hmm. the the connections being able to understand things guide people create wonder and you know that was it was a bar that put that at the forefront that was the purpose of it you know our main kind of pillars to address was you know demonstrating to be honest a professionalism of going look there is more to our drinks world than just the classic cocktails it was sustainability. It was going, you know, we can minimize waste. We can look at different ways of kind of controlling things by taking control. Mm. Um, and it was also just that. It was bartending. How could we put the bits that we loved and we saw as the most important at the forefront of the the setup? And I think, you know, I'd watched so many, you know, I loved seeing the proliferation of cocktails. You'd be able to go to every pub and every restaurant and they would have a version of it. But you'd watch people run around and try and make a mojito in a pub setting, and it was just tough for them. And you, I was just like, this isn't hospitable. Mm. It doesn't benefit the staff. It doesn't benefit the guest. It doesn't benefit the business. How could you actually set things up to enable the bits that matter? Um, you know, there's the reason why great clubs, great pubs, great cafes, restaurants, bars, they play to their setup, and you know the best ones do a simple thing with incredible skill mm. rather than trying to do everything and run around chasing your tail as a result of it. Because, I mean, it feels like batching has been around a long time now, but really it wasn't that common 10 years ago at no. all, was it? And I mean, that was key. And we, we'd we started doing it in my venues at the time, and I know there were a few others. I, I seem to remember um, Nick Strangeway doing it at the um, St Pancras Hotel and that was, I think that might have been the first time I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and, and it, of course, it got some kickback. Yeah. Because it was like, oh, uh, but wait a second, what's the point of the bartender now, you know? Yeah. And uh, and now, of course, you know, I mean, there's still some people who are against batching. Um, but I think, really, if you're serious, you ought to be doing some degree of batching for every drink. 100%. Kind of that, you know? I, otherwise, you, if you're not, I mean, and, and I think it's about any rules. If you're just applying it blanketly, then you're not really being that considered about things. Mm. But, you know, it, otherwise you're doing it for vanity. If you're not considering yeah. some of the, the kind of production that, doesn't diminish the product and helps your guest and your team, then why are you doing it? Why are you refusing to do something like that? And I remember, you know, we did a lot of it at Whistling Shop, but I think because there was still the bar, people didn't get too upset by it. I remember there was a couple of times, um, particularly something like our Radiation Age cocktail, where people, you know, it was one flourish and a stir with the the batch. (laughs) And occasionally you'd get people um, asking the question, but actually that particular case it gave an amazing opportunity to engage and talk through why um but you still yeah you do see it and i remember i had a a really good chat with with sasha petrasky you know about um you know all the amazing things he he ushered in 
through the process of milk and honey and their attention to ice and, and citrus. And I think a lot of people thought that we would have been ideologically at yeah, odds yeah. with that. And, you know, I remember chatting to him about the fact that you almost create a monster when you have that much influence because people follow it like dogmatically mm-hmm. without actually thinking about, is it always right for mm-hmm. that occasion? And, you know, he having a really great conversation with him about that and, you know, him being frank about going, well, it's it's almost like people have decided my rules for me. And, you know, they've taken the lessons that were, were amazing and very important and then just gone, well, that's something that's got to be applied completely... Yeah. Um, to the ultimate blanketly. extreme absolutely. across absolutely everything. Yeah. yeah, This is the danger, isn't it? And, you know, I guess you oh, it's, it's human nature. There's always a subset of people who will take something and not just run with it but sprint with it and yeah. and then as you say it can kind of denature the work that you did because suddenly you know you're responsible for this like atomic reaction yeah. of things that have gone on <laughs> that you never intended in the first place yeah because we would get a lot of questions and people were like oh you created the first bottle cocktail bar and it was like it actually wasn't that and that wasn't the intent and we weren't the first and you know you People just started looking at, I suppose, the headlines without understanding all of the things that went behind it. And particularly around things like the the kind of approach to, well, approach against citrus. Like people were, again, taking those rules or, you know, we wrote a couple of articles on, on again, trying to enable people with the the tools to go, okay, this is a way of thinking, apply this in a way that feels appropriate to you. But people just took it as, okay, this is a formula to plug in to replace lemons. Yeah, yeah. And this is the danger of, you know, the reason why we wanted to give the thinking and not just the uh, ratios was because we were really worried about that. Mm. Just people just applying it. And again, it going atomic instead of it being a... Um, like an opportunity for people to to apply the thinking, to consider what they're doing currently, and then use what is useful for them. Hundred percent out of the sort of thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so we talked a bit about the bars. I'm interested in understanding about you personally as a brand, and how, if at all, you've distinguished between that brand and the brand of the bars collectively, individually, however you want to think about it. Um, and if if you if you do think about the two separately, um, or perhaps two sides of the same coin, when did that realization come about that there was a mis, a Mister Lion or a Ryan brand, depending on how you want to look at it? Mm-hmm. I mean, there was definitely a a strategy to try and link different projects, and um, you know that's where I suppose the Lion moniker came in. It was kind of a manner in which we could take things that were very different. But we're siblings as projects. As long as it rhymes with lion, it's all good. <laughs> it's getting really hard to do. It doesn't have that many. Uh, no. So. Uh, we can go for the colours, and that's like a nice way of just getting out of it. But it, hence why Seed Library kind of came up as a name. We didn't want to force it. And, you know, we weren't just going to be like, Seed Lion. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it, it, it's been there as a way of, of linking things. Um, and it was very purposeful to to kind of have i suppose that parent brand of going how are we going to to use that as a as a guide for of what we're trying to do and over the years i think we've been trying to find a way of i suppose really pinpointing what is it that we're trying to do and i think you know it was always stuff that we get excited by and i I talked about this idea of good things you know how can we do stuff that isn't trying to be perfect 
but is trying to be our own and and do good. And, you know, that became kind of like a bit of a guiding principle. And there were certain things that... The titles of your books as well. The title of the books, yeah. yeah. Um, And, you know, it it became... You know, they they got reinforced by the other work that we're doing with the brand and that, whether that was me personally or things that we were doing that would come from, you know, before it was even studio at that point. You know, different bits of work were feeding into, I suppose, the what Mr. Lyon stood for. And... You know, it was when it came to the bars, it was trying to like allow that brand to to kind of help promote and reinforce those those principles, but for that own sub brand to have its own room to to kind of breathe into its own character. And I think this was really important because we did want to have something that unified and gave something as a steer, um, because we were essentially handing the keys over to the teams. We wanted the teams to be able to take ownership of that space, kind of lead the creativity, for it to behave like it was it was their space. Um, and, you know, like, have everybody pitch in. You know, it not be about just the most senior pe- people in the kind of room or the person who was in charge of creative or anything like that. It was to kind of go, well, everybody has an equal voice and they can pitch in. And yes, of course, there are managers who, who guide it and help with the tasks. But to give everybody a a direction to to kind of unify under, mm. um, and you know I've I've been really proud to see how that's worked. You know each of the teams have have taken on that. Not only have they worked in this amazing unison and this incredible democratic creative process, but they've done it both under the banner of what each of those bars are trying to do, their own characters, styles, places of which they play to but also then under the kind of larger lion brand, which they all connect to. Mm. Um, so it's, it, it was purposeful, but it's also grown in a way that we could never have expected. Um, you know, there was ambitions around ways in which we wanted to, to use a brand in that way and, and link things up and have a diversity of projects, but it's become more so as each of those different threads have come online. Do you think of the bars as kind of, individual aspects of your interest or personality or maybe are they more like children which of course children might actually be aspects of your personality (laughs) actually i can answer that one (laughs) no but do you think do you think of them as as kind of individual children or simply i don't know what's the relationship there how do you uh it's it's a hard one to define but i think it is the former that they you know they all have been born out of things that we're I was going to say excited to challenge, but that sounds too kind of pointed. It's more about things that like areas that we are curious about, curious about. That's the best way of putting it. And I think it was, you know, we wanted to to explore a topic or a, or a direction. And each of those bars had grown into that character. And I think, you know, from the early days, they were much more narrow in terms of what they were addressing, which is partly the reason why we killed them off and created something new from mm. them, because they ended up, satisfying themselves they kind of completed their task Mm. whereas now they're much kind of wider in their brief and they have room to to kind of evolve so because they're wider in their brief the venn diagram has more crossover in the middle kind of thing also that as well yeah like i think there is um as a result of that they they end up kind of sharing space in a slightly different way as well um i think seed library's probably been kind of the most interesting in that because it's kind of departed a little bit. It still feels very much part of the core family and it crosses over in certain ways, but we've tried to purposefully let go of 
the the kind of approach we put into drinks, where we look to source things, and we've tried to step outside of our own biases and comfort zones. So it, it almost starts to take on a slightly different character. Um, so that one probably sits in a... So, sorry, just to explain that a little bit more. So you're, you're trying to step away from your biases in terms of sourcing and provenance. Mm-hmm. And, and how, do you, how do you go about doing that exactly? Um, it's a lot of conversations with particularly different growers, different knowledge sets. Um, we've looked at a lot of kind of indigenous communities and trying to have conversations around their connection to a land and their understanding of it, which, you know, is entirely different to ours. Mm. You know, despite how much, you know, we've tried to, to kind of learn from travels, it's all come from our grounding in, honestly, Western bartending. Mm. You know, even our like understanding of farming principles and why you grow things in a particular way have all been skewed by that. And as a result of that, I we, we noticed that even if we got a new ingredient and however much we tried to remove the shackles and the strict formulae of classic cocktails, we would kind of default back to that position a bit. Yeah. And so with Seed Library, we kind of tried to go, well, how do we look at a different origin point? What would happen if an old fashioned hadn't grown up around the same sweetness and same approach to, to kind of oh, European, yeah. like the roots and spices yeah. and all those things. The, availability, the stuff that was available when old fashions were made. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like what could happen if it had grown up a different path? Mm. Um, Which and, is fascinating, isn't it? Oh, it's great to explore. To, to actually think philosophically about how something might, the different pathway something might have taken if one thing wasn't available and another is, is. And I mean, really, that's that's the story of food and drink anyway, isn't it? A hundred percent is. And I think if you... I mean, you, you could upset a lot of chefs with this, but if you think of some of the most iconic dishes out there, you could argue that they were created by the land. Yeah. Like, they've just literally mm. been born out of what was available, grew together, went together. And and spirits are the same. Spirits are the same. Yeah. And, you know, the, the drinks that got created were about, you know, Dave's got a great line in his, his latest book about, you know, the conditions dictating the, the, the kind of product. It's a much more eloquently put line, <laughs> but, you know, it's just... This is sense of place. It's sense Dave of place. Broom's book, yeah. It is indeed. Sorry. Yeah, yeah that you know the the circumstances are hugely kind of influential on that, and just because we're based in London doesn't mean we can't start thinking about what things would have looked like if they'd grown up on different paths, and mm. you know what can we do to, again, some of it is purely us being internally geeky and trying to go, well, what would have happened? You know, um, it's lovely to be able to to give um platform to 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 these kind of um you know different voices and to try and kind of use our buying power to help kind of support those kind of things and also for ourselves to just kind of learn something different but ultimately it just ends up with something delicious mm. you know it's it's not trying to make that always so kind of academic to people but you put something down in front of you know an audience like a, a london cocktail drinker that are very used to drinking a a plethora of kind of different cocktails all of a sudden it re- represents something in a way that's familiar but completely different and i think that excitement of something new in that way is is something that we should all be exploring mm. do you think i mean some people might say that like your some of your success your notoriety the awards and everything have come through f- sort of carving out a niche and I'm not, I'm not putting you in a box here but like certain kind of specializations in the things we've just talked about food systems botany culture and exposed that and celebrated it and 
you know, make people aware of things they might not have been. How 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 important do you think it is to, you know, your brand is the success of it that you found that niche, um, and do you think like it's do you think it's essential to to get to the kind of level that you are at and your your brands are at to have something that no one else is doing, or that no, or that is perhaps you know underrecognized or not being done to its fullest extent? I mean, I don't know whether it needs to be so niche or whether it needs to just be like an honest reflection of your passions. Mm. I think it's always lovely to kind of like, you know, hear somebody talk passionately about something. And when somebody really cares about it, it's just infectious. Like, and it's nice to be around and you see that they're doing like a lot of depth rather than kind of like, you know, just being like, oh, this is the shiny new thing. And... I would talk about this a lot to the teams when it came to to like cocktail competitions. You can't just look at what won and go, right, Mm. I'm going to replicate that. And like, that's going to be the, you know, winning formula. And it's like, no, it's, it's got to be your own. You've got to find the bit about this brief or this product that you find most interesting and just hone in on that. And I think that was the, you know, reason why we, we ended up getting, um, some good attention from things is because I think we just really cared about it and we tried to like, you know, shout about it to anybody who would listen. Um, And yes, there was a, it was different, but I don't think that was the thing that made it, uh, you know, get recognition. Yeah. I think it was just the fact that we, we showed that we really cared cared about about it. it. Yeah. I mean, I knew that was going to be your answer. That's why I asked the question. Um, (laughs) And it's the right answer. Um, But I, I think it's a question and an answer that needs to be told because I think there is, you know, a, a poorly guided misconception that in order to get ahead, you need to either find some kind of niche that feels pertinent to the time, aka a trend, mm-hmm. um, and then you need to jump on it wholeheartedly and that's how you get, you know, recognised, awarded on a list, whatever it might be. And, you know, you're right. It's I think it's self-reflection um and you know a real kind of analysis on what what makes you happy what drives you what makes you passionate what do you really want to do that is fun and is going to make people happy yeah and and you know you ask yourself those questions and i do think you'll find the path naturally 100%. when you go down that route and the, you know that you, you you know you have a background in biology and you know we've already discussed your kind of rich upbringing in food and drink and no doubt those have played into you know what you're doing now, and yeah. and and the, and the concepts that you're putting together. I'm. Sh- I think everyone has something like that, some kind of string to their bow that they can bring to this industry because it is an industry that kind of pulls from pretty much every other industry in some Absolutely. way or another. Yeah. You know, and and I think it's it's crucial. You know, you talked about getting recognition of success, but it also just makes you happier, and it leads to the diversity we need to see in this industry. Mm. You know, there is so much as you say, people come into it from so many different sides and so many different backgrounds and skill sets. And we should be empowering all of those bits that people are actually interested in. Because there's a real danger with, you know, the stuff that is getting recognition and it's getting into a slightly murky territory now, whether is it a tick box to then be able to get recognition? And we run the risk of a real swathe of homogeneity on stuff because people go, oh, okay, to be good, you just have to have X, Y, Z. And 
the not only is that bad for our industry and it'll be terrible for you know the longevity and keeping guests engaged it just means that it'll become really boring to work in yeah. because you know there won't be any regional difference there won't be any kind of local customs and you won't get any of that real driving passion that made this such an amazing industry and it's such an amazing draw for people to stay within it. You'll just be like, okay, cool, to be in a cocktail bar, it's to have this bit of equipment and to serve these drinks and all menus look like this. And yeah. it's, yeah, it, it's a, it is a difficult thing because, you know, you want there to be recognition for, for hard work. And I think every industry has their own... Um, kind of set of awards that recognizes people recognizing themselves and i think that's where it always starts from is a very humble recognition of your peers but it can easily morph into a monster where it's kind of going you know it's about the commerciality of that and therefore these are the signs of success mm. and you know that's that's not to kind of cast blame onto any party within it but it's it's something that i think as an industry we need to be incredibly conscious of and i think one of the things that i would be very keen to kind of particularly the next wave of bartenders coming through is go just do the things that interest you like focus on the bits that you love and it's so much more enjoyable and you will get your own space to breathe into it and and you know i think that's a it's it's a very important you know we we use the line like not to believe the hype and i think it's it's meant in quite a like wide kind of sense not just about like you know don't get too trumped up if something goes well, mm. but also just to to not necessarily just follow the bulk mm-hmm. of what is happening. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Wise. Uh, you mentioned awards. What I mean, you've won a lot of awards, some of them twice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, more than anyone I know, anyway, I think. Um, so where do you currently stand on awards? And, uh, you know, we don't have to name names, mm-hmm. uh, awarding bodies, but, you know, what's, you know, what, what kind of value do you um see in them how value how much do you value the ones you've won um and i mean there's a question a couple of questions there but also you know can you is there any awarding systems that you think really work and or or ways that which you would change it it's it's a very difficult one because it's evolved a lot over the years of, of of which i've been a bartender and you know of course i'm i'm hugely proud of of some of the success we've had and I'm certainly not going to say that they haven't been amazing for us from both a business point of view, but I'd say the most important one is kind of that recognition to the teams, Mm. you know, just for them, for the work they're doing, particularly when we were doing things that I thought was important and was challenging and, and probably wasn't very popular. You know, it was things that were, were quite pointy conversations. That in the job interview. Yeah. This is not going to make you popular, okay? I'm afraid there are no lemons here, no ice, and people are going to spit at you in the street for a while. But we might get a team award if we're lucky. (laughs) So worryingly close to the truth. (laughs) Um, No, it was obviously it's amazing to to then get, particularly when it's from your peers. And that's been incredible for us. And we're like, I am. I'm incredibly thankful for it. But it was never what we aimed for. It wasn't that we were setting out to do it or we bucked to this criteria or we changed things accordingly. Um, And we certainly didn't do it in any sort of way that, you know, I've seen some fairly, yeah, fairly sinister approaches in terms of, of tactics. And, you know, again, all for like people hustling from a business point of view. But I think you're... The, the the damage that has both to 
a team and a morale but also creativity and an industry is is something that we need to get a bit of a sense check on and i suppose this is the reason why i think it's you know i've i've always worried about what happens when it's about popularity rather than about having things that you can create a metric on and 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 kind of uh judge mm. and i've i've always loved judging panels you know and there's it's never going to be a perfect art there is nothing in the subjective world that has a, a clear and like bulletproof way of of being able to to kind of critique and i remember when we were judging cocktail competitions you try your best to try and find a way of equalizing between judges and you know setting out the criteria and, and getting everybody on the same page about this is what we're looking for but when you've got something that's got such variance in it, it's very hard to do that. And, you know, I like the um, bodies that are honest about that. Mm. They they hold their hands up over the bits they can't control, but are very clear about the bits that are, you know, we are looking for this criteria. This is what we're judging for. And we have a panel of people that will assess it. So it can't just be, I like this, or this is the new flavor of the month. Therefore, it's cool. And so you're kind of giving this opportunity for there to be sensors and like checks in place to be able to make sure that, you know, there is a big impact now on some of these awards. They are globally recognized. They are things that a guest will kind of like seek out. Mm. And so there is a huge responsibility on making sure that that's done with the right amount of consideration. Yeah. And I mean, this is why they're held in such high regard now and why you know, you are getting operators who want to sort of do anything within their power in order to get their hands on one because they see it as the kind of secret source. Um, but uh, with some of them, as you say, it, it is to some extent a popularity contest and the real popularity contest ought to be going on with our guests. You yeah, know? <laughs> you know? absolutely. And there must be a way of looking to empower that without making it, again, something that people people always find ways of exploiting a system but you know if you if you make it too mercenary then that also creates its own problems it's it's not like TripAdvisor should be the um you know the other metric for the industry but you know there's got to be something in between and i think this is where it's important about where these things often start out they they begin as peers looking to to kind of i suppose celebrate peers of going like we've all been in this industry and we recognize the work that's going on mm. that is important for all of us. Mm. And particularly for an industry that has historically been under-recognised. 100%, right? yeah. yeah. And, you know, them being able to, you know, carry weight outside of that industry is, is, a, is a great consequence of that. But, yeah, I think it's... We're at it a very interesting point for the industry and never has there been more, I suppose, sharks circling. You know, even the investment coming into our industry now is, has shifted hugely. Mm. And if we are not cautious about protecting it and being the self-governing body, then we're opening ourselves up to to kind of like really losing all of the charm and, and wonder that was kind of inherent to the system. Reputation. How do you think about your reputation? Do you do anything to protect it? Do you Are you more careful of your words these days? I can't help but feel you've been a bit guarded. <laughs> <I've> been <recorded>. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying not to swear. <laughs> uh... I, I don't think so. I mean, I think there are certainly bits where, you know, it, it's, I like to keep things in a positive light. And I think that is something that yeah. I've been very excited to to kind of champion because our industry has gone through lots of up and downs. And I remain hugely optimistic and, and somebody who is a, 
a, a fierce advocate for the benefits of our industry and the fact that it could be a lifelong career for people. So I, you know, I definitely want to make sure that I like lean my language that way because that's the truth of it. Um, but I, I don't think there's anything I've done to. Well, I hope I haven't done anything sinister enough that I need to kind of have it protected and, you know, like guard my reputation. So, I mean, I think... I the... think it's the really nice guys you got to look out for. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of skeletons in the closet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'm getting lumped in with that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's... I think it's a good principle and, you know, I, I do think hospitality is best when it's honest. And so the most you can be yourself and... I think a lot of people become part of this industry because they like making people happy. And so if you can lean into that, then that's mm. a, a wonderful place to be. And, you know, I think that's a, a, a nice outlook to have on life in general. You know, I think I treat people in the venues as I would do in real life. Um, yeah. Probably in a less sweary manner, but um, ultimately it's that they, they go hand in hand. I don't have a, a work persona and a life persona. Yes, of course, there's bits of my life that are more private than mm. than the, the kind of like wider work aspect, but there's nothing that's um, overtly strategized around how to, to kind of defend a reputation. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it sort of goes back to what we were talking about with building building brands and finding a niche, or if that's the way you want to go. It's about being honest with yourself and, you know, honestly presenting yourself in in a public place from the start and then being consistent with that because as soon as you have to start putting on a kind of persona that's when the mask can potentially slip at some point absolutely and if you're trying to be something you're not that's it's a hard thing to maintain yeah. and i think what's nice to see now is it's not just one character that's you you have to to kind of pretend to be you know if i look at you know people who've been in the the lion fam there's been like some uh, you know we've embrace the idea of like total misfits and like mm. people who are very different characters and it's amazing to see their successes in a personal way so you know they've not had to you know take ian or alex for example they're they're loud they're covered in tattoos they're not in any way shrinking violets but they've not had to pretend to be a certain character to be out in the world and you know i think again that's something that a lot of people should just kind of consider they can be themselves. Mm. They don't need to pretend to be a certain uh, person to, to kind of mm. have success as a bartender. I mean, I remember, you know, I don't know if they would like this talked about on air, but you know, Alex and, and Eric, we were at an event together and um, Alex Cortina and, and Eric Lorenz. Thanks for doing surnames. So Sorry. I to. <laughs> um, uh, you know, hugely successful bartenders. And, you know, particularly when they were in both of their kind of respective hotel careers, um, you know, they'd have young bartenders be like, well, I need to behave like you guys to be able to drive around and flash cars and all these things. And you know, it was a uh, kind of a sad thing to hear that not only were, were were these young bartenders kind of just thinking that that's the key to success, but they weren't also seeing all of the other hard work that was going on. Yeah, yeah. They were just seeing that, oh, of course, you know, I, I get to be flashy and visit nice restaurants and that's what being a bartender is about. Yeah, I remember the year after... Um... Tim Phillips won world class. There were there were an unusual amount of competitors in the competition behaving in, shall we say, an Australian kind of way <laughs> when they were competing. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's sort of again, it's sort of human nature. You're like, oh well, that seems to work. That's the formula. Yeah. So I'll adopt some of that. But 
and I can see why people can fall into that trap. Whether it's a bar concept, a personal brand, an approach to a cocktail competition, approach to drinks, I can see it. Um, and I'm sure I've done it in the past. But um, yeah, there's far more value in doing in sort of forging your own path. And sometimes the, the, that pathway isn't that obvious. But absolutely, a little bit of reflection and a, a little bit of you know quiet observance around you, and then consider what you like, what you don't like really what you don't like and don't like not what you think other people Absolutely. are going to like you doing yeah. and, and kind of take it from there i think we inevitably are magpies as creatures and you will mm. borrow some of those things and you'll find the bits that you admire and you you want to fold that in to improve yourself but as long as you're kind of putting it through that lens of going what are the bits about this that i really admired rather than going the way to gain this admiration is to steal that mannerism mm. then you know i think there's no problem in the idea of of, of seeing something being attracted to it and wanting to improve yourself through that. Yeah. What would a Mr. Lion bar school look like? Give me a day in the in the Mr. Lion school. It's actually something that we've been thinking about a lot because, you know, the idea of training is is really important, but especially as the industry's gone through such rapid change, there isn't that same, I suppose, feeder process of, of, of kind of education before people got to us. And so we've been trying to think around... Um, you know, how do we instill some of those things that I suppose just came from experience? And the thing that, um, you know, we've been trying to work around is how do you include, uh, I, I suppose, the the practical levels of knowledge that I think are important, but actually all of those, like, softer skill sets that really is what goes into making up a bartender and mm. all of those elements of care and attention to detail and... You know, being able to to kind of juggle several tasks in your head and problem solve very quickly. Um, so I think it's it's a really tough one because it's you know how do you train on all of those things concurrently? Well, in some ways, the best way to train it is to get them on the floor of a bar. Oh, totally. <laughs> I mean, it's practice is 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 the most kind of key aspect of it, and live feedback and being able to to kind of like talk through the the reasons why, not just what. Mm. And I think that was something that we've always been very keen to, to kind of instill is going, you know, we do things for a particular reason and nothing is sacred apart from the fact that we double strain our shaken drinks. Um, but we, you know, we'll kind of go, well, we can challenge anything, but there needs to be a reason why. You know, there is, you know, we've got so many idiosyncrasies around the way that we have service because we're just particular people. But it doesn't mean that the, all of those things are kind of sacred cows. If there is something that we want to be able to um, adjust, then there just needs to be a reasoning. So the more that we can talk about why we do things a particular way, the more people get into the the, the kind of wider thinking. And mm. then they can be themselves. Mm. You know, we don't want it to be scripts and, you know, strict procedures of this is where you pick something up and put it down. But you also kind of like start to like instill when you talk about the why you know the manner in which you pick up a glass it's not just where you pick it up it's the manner and the way you place it down the care that you demonstrate and all of those little details that that come from when you understand the fuller philosophy mm. so i think it's yes of course there would be some practical things of going we want you to to pay attention to lots of little details but actually it's about um what is the whole feel of this experience and that varies depending on you know some of our venues some are a little bit more relaxed compared to some are being not formal but a little bit more grand yeah yeah so we talk about the sort of 
overall training of uh, a bartender, floor, whatever person in your venue, how much of those skills do you think are specific to your venue and how much of them are transferable to others? Because you mentioned things like the way to pick up a glass, the sort of, you know, the action of it. Um, there's obviously quite key things to your venues, like the philosophy around ingredient sourcing mm -hmm. or flavors, whatever. You know, do you, do you, do you if, for example, a 50-50 split, do you think like 50% of the stuff that a well-trained member of the team knows that your venue will be useful in another one or is or is it you know a greater greater ratio of like specificity to what you're doing um because we don't have a ton of rules i would say actually a lot of it is you know of course there's details that are specific to the venue and you know some of the weird ingredients that i don't imagine are going to crop in many other bars um but i would hope that 90% of it is transferable. And, you know, I think the thing that I've always loved seeing is, you know, inevitably people come to the end of their tenure with us and they move on to different things. And I'm always really excited to to hopefully see how that, you know, this platform has helped them grow and challenge and not kind of understand how to work in that venue, but to to approach creativity in a new way and to think about, okay, I'm stepping into this new arena. How can I observe all the things that I can observe to control it and make it work the best way I can in this space. Mm. So I really, I mean, I don't think that much of it is that like specific to us. If a, if a member of your team had been with you a while, left and went to work at a, let's just, a hypothetical normal bar, mm -hmm. what would be the thing that everyone comments on about their behavior at work that would be the kind of strangest or most, <laughs> most interesting thing? Um, because of their time spent working with you, in a in a very practical observation way, I'd say they probably will end up like pushing water on people, <laughs> and it's something I'm so fanatical about because to me it's a it's just a good sign of hospitality. But it was it was just something that we used as a tool to be able to not interfere with the table. How do you stay close and be available without? having to go, is everything okay with your drinks mm. and interrupting on... It's an excuse to be there. It's an excuse to be there. Mm. And, you know, I I think I've... It, it's so written into the foundations of what we do. I think it's, you know, I... It was a big thing at Whistling Shop as well, wasn't it? We had, the, we had the tea, didn't we? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, the, the team were like, you you don't let that run out. <laughs> like, even if they paid the bill and they're just sitting there, it keeps getting topped up. And, you know, it was... Um, yeah, it, it was a like a lovely thing I've even heard like people talking about how it's affected they are in home life in or I hope in well, a positive it's, it's, manner it's just a very simple gesture of hospitality there Absolutely. right I'm gonna pour your water it's yeah. like literally the thing you need to live yeah and here you go have some more because yeah. I care that you yeah. live you know and 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 it's exactly that and that's the why it's such a basic foundation of all the bars and you know I'd say it's it's not that common no. and so you know, you. I think that would be something that people would be like, they just keep pouring us water. <laughs> Trying um, to kill us yeah. through an overdose of water. <laughs> Thought it would be the alcohol. Um, yeah, no, but you, you're right. Uh, now that I think about it, that is a, definitely a fundamental component of your venues. Um, <laughs> I have made it my personal mission to try and drink a water glass dry in your venues, um, yet, to, yet to succeed. Whiskey uh, glass also gets... <laughs> it has a tendency of doing that. I don't complain about that at all. Um, what, 
what else? Let's give a little bit of love out. Anything exciting that you're seeing going on in drinks anywhere in the world at the moment? Any any individuals that are doing stuff that you're like, oh wow, this is cool. Um, yeah, I mean the 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 nice thing is there does continue to be these kind of swathes of things, and I think inevitably some of it comes when you travel and experience something new. Um, I think I've I think last time we talked, I I shouted out VJ in in uh, Singapore and. Mm. I still think he's doing kind of amazing work with, you know, trying to, you know, Doug McMaster of, of, of Silo and I, we used to talk a lot about the the advantage of restriction. You know, it's not something to, to kind of see as a, as a hindrance. Actually, it's often an amazing creative spur and kind of going, well, if these are the confines, how can I work out a way to still make it happen? Breeds innovation, right? A hundred percent. And I think, VJ and the other person I'd, I'd champion is is Jeremy over in Sydney, um, who has Jeremy Blackmore has uh, OK Cantina or Cantina OK and Bar Planet and you know is working on a few other different things and either it's like spatial restriction or geographical restriction on ingredients or you know where you're sourcing from and who you're working with. It's just it it's led to some really interesting things and I just still remember kind of even on my most recent trip kind of coming back and you know when you're worried about having such a great experience you've turned back and you're like did I just hit a hallowed perfect spot and you know have I been shouting about something you know that isn't going to be everybody else's experience and you know going back and and trying things and it again being wonderful and it's partly because you're in Singapore and you're in Australia and the produce is just amazing and you know it automatically tastes kind of like great because you've got tropical fruits mm. um but still the kind of like the balance and the care and the nuance coming into it was was really wonderful um i'm really you know actually a, a few things in oz really kind of like excited me um probably the bar i want to visit most in the world is is robert libican's um caretaker's cottage mm-hmm. um because i think again it's another example of you know, him and Matt Sterling, just very clear, and Ryan Oryx, like a very clear vision about what they love and very passionately bringing that to life. You know, it's it's not that it has a massive swathe of, of, of kind of offerings. It's not trying to be all things to all people. You know, I like the fact that there are, you know, something like cocktails, Guinness and Punch always. And I mean, great, a lovely trifecta of things to have on offer. But I think it's just a example of... of, of you know, some people's real clear vision of something and, and seeing them bring it to life. Mm. Um, Creating but, a place where you actually want to spend time in there as oh, well, 100%. Right? Yeah. yeah, like it's, uh, you know, Rob remains one of my, you know, favorite bartenders. You know, he was, you know, hugely kind of charismatic as a bartender and funny and, you know, just would be very good at, like, making you feel at home. So taking a literal home and building a bar into it i think it's you know you know it's going to be a great place to hang out a pub effectively exactly that yeah (laughs) and you know how much we all love i think everybody who kind of like reaches a you know point in in the industry you just kind of go you know where really does this great it's a pub (laughs) (laughs) so true yeah it's so true Oh, God, I can feel a pub in my future, actually. Um, <laughs> final question. Looking back, would you have done anything differently? Uh, no, because I don't really believe in that. Um, I think there has been a huge number of failures that we've had. and So things... what have been the hardest failures to stomach then? 
Um, you wouldn't Ooh. have changed it because, of course, you've grown from it. But uh, which, have, which have been the toughest ones to... I mean, that, maybe maybe you don't want to get personal, is not it? It's... it's <laughs> uh, you know what? There are certain bits of sensitivity that I think I've learned as a result. You know, at one point, you know, Dan Lyon was... 32 people we had super and white line at that point you know the, I, i've well, i think we're over on 100 on team members anyway across the world but there were certain points where we were so close and involved but also quite separate like it, we had to kind of recognize that even though we i suppose failed to recognize that that we would um you know come in and make quite big statements to the team about things that we thought were exciting new directions without giving consideration to the fact that it was their product. Mm. And, you know, we, you know, we made changes and we thought it was exciting. And I ultimately think they were all for the right reasons. And eventually, you know, the teams all were on board on it. But I think it gets to a point of being a business owner where, you know, it's, especially when it's, you know, inevitably it's scrappy at the start and then you still feel that way and your emotional connection it is it's your scrappy little upstart um but you're responsible for people's lives mm -hmm. and you I, I remember you know it it's almost like the first time you you notice a scary driver on the road and you realize that as much as you can control there are other things that are at play and you know you you kind of start to realize that you have such a a bigger responsibility than your business it's about people's lives and not only their like livelihoods of being able to put food on their family's table and things but you know their careers as well and you know that that was something that i suppose got revealed to me in a way that like i had been insensitive of and so i think i still reflect on that and think i again i I wouldn't have learned as much had I not kind of been brutal about it and bold in and being like, we're going to close this. <laughs> um, mm. And, you know, seeing people's reactions to it. But, you know, I, I certainly feel bad about that. And it's something that I, I now use as a steer in, you know, it's, it's made me feel much more responsible around mm. all of the work that we do. Well, the important thing is not being ignorant to it, isn't it? At yeah. the end of the day. Well, mate, you are an inspiration and a great pal. And it's been a pleasure it's good to chat. It's the only seems to be the only way I can sit you down and have a conversation <laughs> is in a, on a podcast where loads of other people get to listen to us talk as well. But um, well done. You've you've done an amazing job, and you are, you know, we've talked a lot about the brands you've built and um, your own brand and the philosophies and everything. But you are beyond that. I think a great, you know, great uh, individual poster child, whatever you want to call it, for our industry. Oh, that's very sweet. You're Thank a, you. You're, you're, a, you're a wonderful person for people to live up to. And so if people do happen to uh, borrow some of your your concepts and philosophies, then it, I'm sure it's, uh, in, you know, it's a great compliment and, and a testament to some of the great stuff you're doing. So Thank you. That's very kind. And it, it's always love to catch up, but we need to find out ways outside of recording studios <laughs> to do it for sure. All right. And thank you everyone for listening. Okay. I really hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation as much as I did. It was fantastic to get Ryan back on. And do remember we have had him on before. Just scroll back to the flavors episode with uh, Grace Ramirez and Ryan from February, 2021. And if you enjoyed any of this, make sure you become a Diageo Bar Academy member. Head over to diageobaracademy.com for the latest industry news, events, and inspiration. And subscribe to get it emailed to you.